We're in Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 16 and verse 17. And uh, I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible. Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Uh, That profound uh, thinker and philosopher Charlie Brown asked his uh, good friend Linus once, Do you ever think much about the future? And Linus says, oh yes, all the time. Charlie pursues it by asking, well, what do you think you'd like to be when you grow up? And after a moment of thinking, Linus replies, outrageously happy. And you know, I think most of us would answer it that way. You know, we all want to be outrageously happy, or we'd probably even just settle for happy. And there there are two basic ways you can pursue happiness. One way is uh, to try to arrange your circumstances so that you'll be content. You can try to get a fulfilling job, a, a good marriage and family life, that sort of thing, enough money to be comfortable. The problem is none of those good things in life are secure because you can lose your job, As we all know, there's not a trouble-free family on earth, and all of the good things that we strive for can be uh, taken away because they're not controllable by us. Things like war or fire, like they're having up in Canada, other natural disasters, or, of course, death. The other way to seek happiness is to seek it in the Lord. Because if you're happy in God, you've got lasting happiness. The world can't give it. The world can't take it away, as the saying goes. Um, You know, you can go through tremendous trials. You can even face death from martyrdom, as we've seen many suffer in the last few years in the Middle East. But they are secure in the Lord and have an abiding joy in him. Uh, You see that in the New Testament. The apostles, they were flogged for their faith. They were warned to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And then we read that they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Same thing with uh, the apostle Paul and Silas in Philippi, they were unjustly beaten without a trial, thrown into jail, their feet in the stocks, and at midnight they were singing hymns of praise to God. And Paul would later write to that church in Philippi, uh, where that incident happened, Rejoice in the Lord. There's the key. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Another man who's one of my spiritual heroes, George Mueller, a man who by faith and prayer alone supported thousands of orphans 
never asking for, for funds. He was a man who experienced solid joy in the Lord. Uh, the most recent biography I'm aware on Mueller by a man named Roger Steer, he subtitles it, Delighted in God, and that's a, an appropriate subtitle. And Mueller practiced and taught that the first business of every day is to seek to be truly at rest and happy in God. So the question I want to ask is, does that describe you? Could you say, yeah, I'm happy in God? Now, I'm sure that all of us would probably admit, yeah, but I could use a few more pointers on how to improve that statement. And the Apostle Paul gives them to us in the text we read here. He's describing a life that is happy in God, and it's a life of thankful worship. And so he's saying here that we as the Lord's people should be characterized by this thankful worship, and it engages the whole person, and it extends to all of life. In verse 16, Paul's describing the church gathered together, as we are here this morning, where we are to teach and admonish one another through the word and through singing, as we thankfully sing praises to God. Then in verse 17, Paul extends it out Monday through Saturday to all the rest of life and shows that thankful worship should be the aroma that surrounds a Christian. I I love that story in John 12 where uh, Mary anoints Jesus right before his uh, crucifixion. And it says that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the, of the anointment, uh, anointing oil, the perfume. And that's how our lives should be, that people around us get this aroma of thankful worship. Now, that leads to the question, well, what do we mean by worship? And I think one of the most eloquent um, definitions ever given was by William Temple, he's a late Archbishop of Canterbury, but he said this, For to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. It is to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to devote the will to the purpose of God. John MacArthur wrote a wonderful little book called The Ultimate Priority that's about worship, and his definition is that worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of who God is, or truth of God as he has revealed himself. And then later, more succinctly, he writes, Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. And when you study the Bible and you encounter, or you see people that have an encounter with God, Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 6, or those kind of things, Ezekiel, always worship is instant. 
They, they see God in his glory and his majesty. They instantly are aware of their own frailty and sin. And they fall down before God. And it's like a catalyst worship happens. And so the point is the key to worship is not to focus on worship. The key to worship is to focus on God. When we get a glimpse of God and who he is and his mercy, his grace, his love, his holiness, his justice, all of his attributes, uh, then uh, we will spontaneously recognize his glory and worship him. Four things that I want to point out in our text about this quality of thankful worship. First of all, thankful worship engages the mind with the word of Christ. Paul writes, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. The word of Christ refers probably both to Christ's word, what he taught when he was on earth, but also to the Bible that talks about Christ. All of the Old and the New Testament point us to Jesus Christ. Um, It's a unique phrase. That's the only time in the Bible this phrase, the word of Christ, appears. And probably here, because as you've seen, as we've worked through Colossians, Paul is exalting Jesus Christ to a people who are plagued with false teachers who are denying Christ his rightful place. And so Paul describes the scriptures as the word of Christ. They speak to us about Christ. They invite us to come to Christ, to find salvation and blessing for all of our needs. Now, Paul says that we should let this word of Christ richly dwell within us. And that word richly um, implies the fullness and the completeness of God's word for all of life. When you come to the Bible, you come to an inexhaustible treasure. You know, with the Hubble telescope, and I understand now there's going to be another even more powerful telescope, astronomers are finding out the universe goes on and on and on and on. There are billions of galaxies, and each galaxy has billions of stars, and it's just incredible. Well, the Bible is like that, you know? I remember when you go to seminary, you think, wow, good, I'll get out of seminary and I'll have all the answers I need. Ha ha. All you do is find out all the questions about things you don't know, and you begin to study the Bible and you recognize this is inexhaustible. The deeper you go, the more you realize there's more I don't know, and you just keep going and digging and digging. But it's a, it's a treasure is the idea. Also, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us implies that we need this abundant supply of the word of God, the word of Christ. Uh, you can gorge yourself on the word, you know, to use modern slang, pig out on the Bible. Uh, I know that when I pig out on food that's not very good for me, that's not good, you know. It puts on unwanted pounds and all of that. But the good news is you can pig out on the Bible and it's good for you. Um, maybe in heaven, broccoli will not be so good for you and ice cream will be nourishing. I don't know. But in this earth, the Bible's your ice cream. It's good for you, and it's even your broccoli, but it tastes good. So 
you can enjoy the Bible. And, uh, you know, I was thinking this week, if, if our physical appearance reflected how much we feed on the word, would we be a skinny church or a fat church? I hope we'd be a fat church, you know, because all of us are just gorging on the word every day and feeding on it and that we would be well nourished. So that's all implied in that word richly. The word dwell, of course, implies that um, we should live in the scriptures and let the scriptures live in us. You know, I could come visit your home and maybe you'd give me a tour of your home, show me all the rooms and what's going on and everything, but I don't live there. I don't live there. And to live there means it's the place I come back to all the time. I'm always going home. And home is a refuge. And home is a a wonderful place. And when I'm home, generally, I know where things are. You know, if I need a screwdriver, I know it's in that drawer. If I need this or that. Well, we should all be at home in the Word of God. Where we, we know where things are. Where we're comfortable there. It's our refuge. We come back to it every day. Every day. It's the place where we get our meals. All of that. That's all implied in the concept of letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you. The phrase in you, of course, has an individual sense that each of us should have our individual feeding in the word, but it's also talking here about the church. It's plural in Greek, and I think what it means is that we are to teach and admonish one another with the word, and it means that We should be so full of the Bible that when we get around each other, we just spill on each other. You know, we we are feeding on the Word. We're full of the Word. So whether it's in a um, Sunday gathering or during the week, uh, when you meet another believer and you begin talking, very quickly the Word comes out. Something you got in your time with the Lord that day or something the Lord is showing you out of the Word. That's the idea of in you. Now, just a technical matter, the uh, scholars debate on how do you punctuate verse 16, because the original Greek uh, not only had no punctuation, it had no space between the, the words. They all run on together. And you can punctuate it so that the sense of the verse is that we use the word of Christ to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and then the rest of the song would read, singing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the um, New International Version and the English Standard Version both kind of go that direction with it. Or the sense may be that as the Word of Christ richly dwells in us, we teach and admonish one another through our singing. And the New American Standard Bible takes it that way. Grammatically, it's really hard to decide. And Frankly, there's truth in both views. Um, We do teach and admonish one another through the word, and we do teach and admonish one another through doctrinally sound songs. And that's one reason that I argue we should sing some of the great hymns of the faith, because they are doctrinally rich, and they teach solid biblical truth. The word teach implies communicating Bible doctrine or biblical precepts 
The word admonish there is more of a correction word, uh, giving a warning. With all wisdom refers to applying the word to practical situations in our life, the, the ability to take the knowledge and put it into uh, shoe leather. And so whether it's here from the pulpit, in a home uh, Bible study, or even in your private home, um, uh, wherever it may be, private conversation, having coffee with a brother or sister, uh, the word of Christ should be central in our lives as the idea as we teach one another through it, sometimes a word of correction through it, sometimes uh, just the wisdom of how to apply it. Now, what that means is biblical truth is essential when we worship. Um, the goal of theology should be doxology, praise. In other words, we can't divorce them. You can't put aside sound doctrine and just come and get good vibes and say you worshiped. Jesus told the woman at the well that God seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth. And truth implies, again, Bible knowledge, Bible doctrine. And the reason I bring this up is there are people who would claim they worship God But when you sit down and talk to them, the God they're worshiping is a God of love who never judges anyone. Well, that's an idol they're worshiping because that's not the living and true God. The living and true God is a God of love, but his word is very clear from Genesis to Revelation. He is a God of judgment and holiness. And so my point is, Worship rests on knowing God, and the only place God has revealed himself is in his word. And if you don't know his word, you can't rightly worship him in truth. And so, yes, we all grow in that, but you can't divorce it. And you hear so many people today, oh, doctrine, that's, that's dead. We don't need doctrine. We just need to feel, no, no, no. Our spirit worship should be based on truth worship. Uh, They are both essential. And so uh, the first thing then is that thankful worship begins by engaging our minds with the word of Christ. Then secondly, thankful worship engages both the mind and our emotions. That's important. Emotions are a part of it. In joyful singing to Christ. And I think that's implied when Paul adds with songs and hymns. And spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, if you've come here for any length of time, you know that I put a premium on preaching the word. I wouldn't spend all the hours I do every week preparing biblical sermons if I didn't believe in that. Uh, But I want to say this. Singing is not just the filler that we use to allow latecomers to arrive before the main event. Uh, that's not true. Singing is worship time, and I hope my sermons are worship and lead you to worship as you come to a deeper understanding of who God is and all of his blessings that he's given to us. But singing should focus both our minds and our hearts on God and all that he has graciously provided for us in his salvation so that we respond with love and with devotion and reverence for him. 
the word of Christ, then, is what enables us to worship God in truth. But I believe that singing enables us to worship him in spirit, as Jesus used both of those. And so we have to know God is revealed in his word to worship him properly. But what I'm saying is, if it doesn't move from your head down to your heart, something's wrong. You know, uh, it's like a relationship. My relationship with my wife is based on commitment, not feeling. But if I don't feel love for her, something's wrong there. It's got to be there at times. And if you never feel the love of Christ as you worship, if you never are awed by who God is and what he has done for us and all of that, then something's wrong. And, you know, it's not an accident that the longest book of the Bible is a songbook. It's a songbook, the book of Psalms. Sometimes people say, what book would you want of the Bible if you were on a deserted island? Give me the Psalms. I would take the Psalms. Number one, it's more of the Bible than any other book, so I've got more to chew on. But the Psalms sing truth to the Lord. And, um, you know, where whenever in God's, in the history of God's people, there's been revival. There's been a revival of singing where new songs are sung and, and written and so on. And singing, you notice, is to be done with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, in, in the Greek text, that with thankfulness is literally in the grace. And it may mean um, that that the songs we sing should make us mindful of God's grace, which, of course, makes us thankful. So thankful is a um, legitimate trans- <clears throat> translation there. But the singing is to be done with thankfulness, notice, in your hearts. And that's significant. God always looks on the heart, not on the outward man. Men look on the outside. God looks on the heart. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to say this, and you can chew on it. But I would argue that our hearts are not rightly worshiping God if we just sit here and mumble through a song or don't sing at all, and we look out the window and we think about the NBA playoffs that are on this afternoon and hope I get home in time to watch them or whatever, you're not worshiping. You're not worshiping. You know, to worship, you have to put aside distractions, all the other things, and say, wait a minute, what are these words telling me? Oh, God, my heart's cold. That just isn't moving my heart. What's wrong with my heart that I'm not feeling your love? I'm not feeling your grace. Oh, God, Warm my heart. And, and it takes that concentrated effort to worship God in your heart. Now, you, if you've come here a while, you know I'm not a charismatic, okay? I, I disagree with their theology on some points. And while I love charismatic brothers, sometimes I think they err on being too heavy on emotion and too light on doctrine. But I want to say this. When I have worshipped in charismatic churches, I always appreciate their worship. Uh, Their worship. I grew up in a church, a traditional Bible church, and uh, we always mumbled through a few hymns, a couple of hymns, 
took the offering, had a solo, sang the doxology, and then the preacher got up and preached. And, uh, you know, if, if a visitor walked in, I don't think they would sense these people are serious about God. God is in this place. It just wasn't that kind of a church. Uh, the song leader would often, come on now, everyone, let's sing this verse louder. Everybody stand and we'll really give it all we've got, you know. And he's trying to pump up everybody and everybody's kind of, okay, I guess I need to do it. But, you know, their hearts were not in it. And then I remember the first time I visited a charismatic church, I just thought, you know, these people aren't half-hearted about worship. Now, some of them, sure, maybe got carried away. But they were into it. And everyone was engaged. Some of the people had their eyes closed. Some were lifting their hands in praise to God. But I walked away and I thought, you know, God was there. They, they were engaging with God. And uh, the worship leaders weren't up there performing. They were leading us into the presence of God. And I really want our worship here to be like that. And frankly, it's not there. We need to work on it. We need to work on it. You ever read 2 Samuel 6? I hope you read the Old Testament. David's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And it says that he's leaping and dancing before the Lord with all his might. And his prim and proper wife, and I don't know how you pronounce her name, Michael, Mickle, Michelle, however it's pronounced, but anyway... She's Saul's daughter, married to David. She looks out the window, and she sees David, and she is mortified. How embarrassing. You know, that is not dignified for a king. And so David gets in the house, and man, she gives him a tongue lashing. You know, how in the world could you, you know, act like that out there? And David defends himself, and he says, I was celebrating before the Lord. And you know what? In that story, the Lord sides with David. And he strikes his wife with barrenness for the rest of her life. But the point is this. God wants our worship to be with thankfulness and to be from the heart. To be from the heart as we think on the truth of God. It's not just that we pump up our emotions. The emotions are the caboose that follow the truth. You know, the little back faith feeling train in the four law booklet. And then there's a final thing here. Paul says that we should sing with thankfulness in our in your hearts to God. To God. And that's what David was doing. He says, I'm celebrating before the Lord. And it means we aren't supposed to be worship centered. We are to be God centered. When you come and worship, you have an audience of one. God. The living God is here, and you're doing it as an offering of sacrifice of praise to him, to please him. And even when we're singing a song to admonish one another, as we'll look at in just a moment, or to teach one another, the point is God is present, and and we're doing it as a service to him. We're singing to him. So again, do you do that? When you come in here, do you say, Lord, you're here. And this morning, I want my offering to be pleasing to you, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving 
that I'm offering up to the Lord. Forget all my brothers and sisters. It's God that we want to please. We're offering it to him. And, you know, I confess, sometimes my heart is cold, and I have to confess it, and Lord, help me here to worship you properly. Now, what kind of songs should we sing? Well, Paul mentions three, and they're kind of hard to distinguish. Scholars think, though, that Psalms probably refers to the Psalms of the Old Testament set to music. The uh, Greek word actually means to pluck, solo. And so probably they were set to a accompaniment on a musical instrument. Hymns are hymns of praise to God, and songs could be any kind of song, but it's qualified by the adjective spiritual song, songs that uh, direct us again to the things of God. I think he uses the three terms to show that there's a freedom and, and that we are to have a variety of different kinds of songs. Uh, again, we're on touchy ground here because many churches, as you know, are divided by worship wars. And uh, to solve that, there are churches that say, well, we will have a contemporary service for everybody that likes the drums and the, you know, the bass guitar and all of the contemporary music. And we'll have a traditional service where we sing hymns accompanied by the piano and organ, and you divide the church. And as I pointed out recently, I disagree with that. Uh, I don't think we should divide the congregation along those lines, number one. And um, number two, I think we need both kinds of songs. Uh, I, I love many of the newer songs. You know, they're just fabulous in Christ alone. Or um, how deep, how great the Father's love for us, how deep the Father's love for us. Uh, what a wonderful song those are. And I don't think we should not sing them because they're modern. I think that when God is moving, we'll have new songs and hymns. Um, in my opinion, some of the modern ones go overboard on repeating the same words over and over and over and over. And, you know, by the third time, I know that our God is an awesome God. And I don't need to sing it ten times. And so, in my humble opinion, sometimes we need to just say, you know, third time, I think I got it. That's good. Don't need to go on and on and on and on repeating it. And sometimes that's just done to work up emotion without content. And again, the emotion should be based on the content. Uh, I also am going to argue, though, that we need some of the older great hymns of the faith. And some of you young people may not connect with that. I'll be very honest, we've lost people from this church because they go over to another church that just does contemporary stuff. You know, welcome to church, here's your earplugs. Um, and they blast you out of there with the rock music. Well, I think those churches are lacking. I really do. They're lacking some great doctrine in the hymns, and the old hymns, if you know church history, and you should be reading on church history, they connect us with our heritage. And that's vital, to know your family heritage, Christian family heritage. You know, when you sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, it, it connects you to the Reformation. Martin Luther wrote that. And, and to the great truths that were recovered in the Reformation. Uh, the Wesleys, during the revivals in England in the, 19th, in the 18th century, 
they wrote hymns to teach doctrine to illiterate minors. And you read the history, and often these men, their faces would be covered black with coal, and they said they could see white streaks from the tears running down their faces as they sang these great hymns. And uh, Charles Wesley, you know, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? Uh, And so on. The third verse reads this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. That first line, you know, comes right out of Romans 8.1. Jesus and all in him is mine. That's Colossians 3.11, isn't it? Christ is all and in all. Uh, Alive in him, my living head, we've seen that in Colossians, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And then the the great refrain, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let me give you a practical assignment. If you don't own a good hymnal, buy one. You can probably find them at Goodwill or somewhere because they just aren't a going item. Although, you know what? John MacArthur just came out with a new one called uh, Hymns of Grace. I bought it. And um, it's got contemporary, and it's got the older hymns. You say, well, I don't know the tunes. Well, you don't have an excuse. You can go on the Internet and type in Christian hymn tunes, and it pops up, and you type in the name of the hymn, and you can hear it being sung or played. And so you can learn the tunes. And I really encourage you to do that. And then use your hymnal in private times of worship with the Lord, And then you come in here, and you're full. You're full of Christ and worship. And when we gather together, it resounds, and it just multiplies as we worship the Lord. So, first of all, Paul is saying worship engages the mind with the word of Christ, and then it engages the emotions, along with the mind, in joyful singing to Christ. And thirdly, thankful worship engages the will in submission to Christ. You say, well, where is that in these verses? I think it's explicit in two places. It permeates the whole. But in the phrase, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and secondly, in giving thanks. The name of the Lord Jesus implies his authority. Um, Jesus' name, as Paul says in Philippians 2.9, is the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when you do something in the name of Jesus, it means you do it under his sovereign authority. Um, And implicit in a life of thankful worship is that our lives are in submission to his rightful lordship. You know, sometimes Christians will ask the question, can I do such and such an activity? It's something that the Bible doesn't specifically speak to. Verse 17 is your answer to that question. Can I do this activity? Uh, The answer is, well, can I do it in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord? And if you're not sure, I don't know that I'd want Jesus with me when I'm doing that. 
or I'm not really sure that's going to honor him, then don't do it. But if you can do it with the Lord and under in submission to him, then you do it joyfully and thankfully. There's a second place where the idea of submission to Christ is explicit, and that is in the words, uh, giving thankfulness through him to God the Father. Did you notice that Paul mentions thankfulness in verse 15, verse 16, and again in verse 17? He's just hammering on being thankful people. And you can't thank God if you're not in submission to God's hand in your life in all your circumstances. You know, when I thank the Lord, even in a hard time, in a time of trial, I am saying, Lord, I trust that you are God. I trust that you are good. I trust that you are sovereign. And I submit to your ways with me, like Job there in that amazing place where God has taken through Satan, but God permitted Satan to kill all of Job's ten kids. I can't imagine that. Ten kids. And Job worships the Lord. He bows before the Lord in worship. And so saying thank you, Lord, means I trust you are good. I trust you are sovereign. I trust you are loving. And the opposite of being thankful is grumbling. Any of you struggle with grumbling? Come on. I do. I'm sure you do. You know, to grumble says, I don't like the way you're dealing with me, God. And I think I could run my life better. If you knew what I knew, God, you would just do this rather than what you're doing with me. That's grumbling. And grumbling laid the children of Israel low in the wilderness. A whole generation couldn't go into the promised land because of grumbling. How do you deal with grumbling? Well, one way that I've been helped, again, is reading the Psalms. Reading Psalms every morning. This morning I was in 122. Dave quoted it at the start of worship. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go in the house of the Lord. And I read 122 and 123 this morning. But, you know, I I write down on three by five cards some of the great verses out of the Psalms about praise and worship. And uh, here's one of them, Psalm 5, 11 and 12. It says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Now, I would say if you read that verse over a few times in the morning, it's pretty hard to grumble. Pretty soon your heart just wells up in praise and you're going, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. And then finally, Paul shows that thankful worship extends to all of life there in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or in deed. And so that takes it from Sunday when we gather to Monday through Saturday all of the week. And you know, there's no sacred secular divide in the Christian life. All of life is sacred uh, to the Lord And we're to live all of life gratefully under the Lordship of Christ. Now, that's not to say we don't need to gather on the Lord's Day for worship and teaching. Of course we do. But what it means is that in every aspect of my life, 
I can reflect the joy of salvation, and I can speak and I can act in the name of Christ. And so that just means that you have the word of Christ percolating through your brain. You have songs of praise, uh, the same thing, bubbling up as you go through your day. And so whether you're at work or whether you're playing with your kids or whether you're on stopping a clock toilet or whether you're cooking dinner or cleaning up or whatever you're doing, you can do it thankfully to the Lord with the song of praise and joy for your salvation. Let me close by just giving you one example that I've never forgotten. Some of you remember Dr. John Hanna. Uh, We had him speak at a men's retreat, and he spoke here one Sunday morning a few years ago. He was uh, one of my church history professors in seminary, Um, and uh, he told a story that he and his wife were moving to Dallas to go to seminary to begin their studies there, and they had packed everything they owned into a Volkswagen, and they were driving on the road to get there, and something malfunctioned, and the car caught on fire. And John and his wife quickly pulled to the side of the road. All they had time to do was leap out of the car for their own lives. And they stood on the side of the road, and they watched everything they owned on this earth going up in smoke. Now think about it. What would you have done in that situation? You know, it would really be easy to get angry with the Lord. You know, Lord, I'm going to seminary. It's not like I was on a trip to Las Vegas to gamble or sin or something. I'm going to seminary, and I'm preparing so that I can serve you and everything I own on earth. And it wasn't much, Lord. I'm not exactly being greedy. Everything I own on earth is right there going up. Boy, you could have gotten angry. You know what John and his wife Carolyn did? He said they both knelt down on the blacktop there on the side of the road, and they sang the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. That is a life of thankful worship. That is reflecting people who are happy in God. And that's what Paul is saying, that we can be happy in God if we'll learn to live thankfully before him a life of thankful worship in all that we do in all of life. Let's pray. Dear Father, if my brothers and sisters are like me, uh, there's a lot of grumbling we have to confess. Thank you for your mercy in Jesus. Thank you that he forgives all our sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to reflect your goodness and your salvation and the joy that we have knowing that our eternity is secure in you, that it would just exude from our lives, not just here as we gather, I pray for that, but also as we scatter into the world, a world that is without you and without hope, a world that lives for self and pleasure and stuff, all of which can be taken in an instant. Help us to reflect the solid joy and lasting treasure that we have in Christ. 
And Lord, if any are here and they don't know what I'm talking about, that they don't have eternal life, they don't have Jesus, I ask that you would open the eyes of their understanding to see that Christ came into this world to save sinners, that he offers to all eternal life as a free gift for all who believe that you would work the miracle of regeneration in their hearts. And so, Father, equip us as your people to be joyfully thankful, worshipful, not just here Sunday morning, but all week long, that our Savior would be glorified in and through us, we ask in his name. Amen.